From the University of Virginia's Deliberative Media Lab, this is Democracy in Danger. I'm Will Hitchcock. Earlier this month, a much-anticipated effort to redraw congressional and state voting districts in Virginia, relying on a new bipartisan commission, came to a grinding halt. Today, we offered to have one Republican map and one Democratic map because we are running out of time. And it was voted against on party lines. And we can't now start talking about uh, let's hold out the hand of friendship and kumbaya. Each side showed up with its maps and its consultants, and they just couldn't get anywhere. For God's sake and peace sake, and for the Commonwealth of Virginia, let's start moving this thing down the road. We cannot keep playing these games. I think uh, there have been too many allegations of, of bad faith here. Every single discussion that we've had in every single meeting has been a partisan discussion. It may not feel that you'll never break the tie. But I bet you will. Every single discussion. Three of eight Democrats walked out. One of them said, I never want to be involved in this again. And if I had any recommendations for the next go round, for the next the 2030 census, um, that we not have elected officials on a commission, if I can't believe that the people that I'm supposed to work with are true and sincere, um, regrettably, I am done. Inevitably, the Republicans cried foul. Some of us who are accused of being partisan simply do not want the process to be slanted. But it looks like they might get what they want, a resolution imposed by the conservative-leaning state Supreme Court. Meanwhile, Virginia's candidates for governor are locked in a tight race in what is, along with New Jersey, the first statewide referendum of the post-Trump era. The Democrat here in the Old Dominion is an establishment figure and the front-runner in a state that has been leaning blue lately. Last weekend, uh, we knocked on 102,000 doors. Historic. But he can't seem to excite people very much, and the GOP candidate is a millionaire who has embraced Donald Trump's single issue, election fraud. We will reestablish the integrity of our election process. Now, this contest in Virginia, like elections in many other states, may be decided by turnout in rural versus urban areas, the red farm country versus ever bluer cities. All this makes the Commonwealth of Virginia a pretty interesting place right now and worth thinking about in the context of the larger problems with American democracy. So we've invited two guests today with deep experience in Virginia politics. Brian Cannon joins us from WCVE in Richmond, and we have David Toscano with us here in Charlottesville. Brian was the director of the redistricting reform organization, One Virginia 2021. He now works with the nonprofit Institute for Political Innovation. And David served in the Virginia House of Delegates for 14 years, the latter half as minority leader for the Democratic Caucus. He recently authored a new book, Fighting Political Gridlock, How States Shape Our Nation and Our Lives. David, Brian, welcome to Democracy in Danger. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. David, let me start with you. You write in your new book that states can be laboratories for democracy. Well, that's an idea, I think, inspired by Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis from a 1932 opinion. States, state governments are closer to the voters, the theory goes, right? So they should be able to experiment and act boldly on issues that voters care about, health care, climate change, infrastructure, and so on. But we're seeing 
states follow very divergent paths. So in Texas, there's radical anti-abortion legislation. You know, in Florida is defunding public school districts that require mask wearing. And then you've got states in New England, say, and Virginia, we could include in this, which are pressing progressive agendas, like banning the death penalty and mandating vaccines and legalizing marijuana. So my question is, is this wide range in policy among the states good for the country as a whole? Well, you know, it's both a strength and a weakness. There are occasions where the laboratory of democracy works very well and sets up the federal government to do something that they might not otherwise have done. The classic recent case is uh, Massachusetts and healthcare reform. In 2006, when Mitt Romney, a Republican, was governor of Massachusetts, they decided they were going to have a system where everybody had access to insurance and the state was going to subsidize those who could not afford to pay. Uh, it was called an individual mandate and it became the basis of the Massachusetts system. That was in 2006. And along comes Barack Obama and the Congress and embraces this innovation that occurred in Massachusetts. And now we have the ACA and uh, Obamacare. And that's worked very well for the country, despite the political uh, ramifications and the political disagreements about how it should work. So that's an example of an innovation that occurred in the state that was essentially accepted by the federal government and put into practice. But at the same time, there are lots of weaknesses in here. You know, you have different states who are right next door to each other are doing totally different things. For example, in Florida and Texas, where they have taken the lead opposing any kind of federal mandate for vaccinations or mask wearing, the people go from state to state. People from Florida go back to New York. People from Texas head to California and back. And when you have a national challenge such as this, you should have a national response. And the states, you would like to think in a federal system, would embrace the national response because it helps all their constituents. But that is not always the case. Yeah. I mean, if you took the case of Texas and their recent anti-abortion uh, legislation, you could make the case that Texas legislature and governor are basically trying to short circuit the system by, by creating a very radical set of uh, laws on uh, anti-abortion, opposing abortion access, essentially in the hopes that it might get challenged in the courts, reach the Supreme Court, and then become national policy. So Texas is actually trying, in my view, to work the system in a way that a, you know, a, a nationwide referendum would not uh, be able to deliver the same results because broadly conceived, some kind of access to abortion is relatively popular in the, in the country as a whole. So is that how the system is supposed to work? Well, that's how the system does work. And people on the right recognized that a long time ago. They recognized that after Obama won the national election in 2008, that they were not going to be able to have any control of this country unless they seized control of the state legislatures and then used them for their purposes of uh, in the redistricting process to make sure you had districts where Republicans could be elected. And they've been very successful at that. Uh, the same time, the uh, conservatives in a lot of these states have tried to set up a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade so that the U.S. Supreme Court would overturn that decision and leave all the abortion decisions with the states. So you've got the Texas case, but that's not the one that I'm most worried about. I'm most worried about Mississippi. And Mississippi, uh, as well as a number of other states in the South, 
have passed some very draconian laws that are now going to be tested in the Supreme Court that might uh, overturn Roe v. Wade. And then we've got a system where it's going to be a state-by-state decision as to what uh, reproductive rights women have in that state. Well, Brian, let's have a closer look at the laboratory of democracy theory right here in Virginia. So on November 3rd, 2020, voters in Virginia approved an amendment to the state constitution, creating a you know redistricting commission. And the idea was that a carefully balanced bipartisan commission would redraw our federal and state voting districts. The measure was pretty popular. It won broad support uh, from the public. And, and Brian, you were a leading advocate of that proposal. Well, so far, the bipartisan commission has failed. It's failed pretty spectacularly. You know, members of the commission have said that, quote, there's a fundamental lack of trust on the commission. So it does appear uh, headed to the state Supreme Court. I've just got to ask you, why has the bipartisan redistricting process th- that you have championed failed in Virginia? So, Will, I think you make a good, good point there. I don't think the process has failed yet. You know, we ran a campaign and the entity we formed to run the campaign was called Fair Maps Virginia. And I think we're going to get Fair Maps here in Virginia and it'll be the first time. We're either going to get Fair Maps because this uh, commission gets its act together and produces them. They're they're working on congressional maps now. Or uh, if the commission can't work, the old way is it would have gone back to the legislature and the legislature would do it. And we never get Fair Maps from a legislature. The new way is now it goes to the Virginia State Supreme Court. And and in your introduction, you mentioned that they're a conservative court. And I would take a little issue with that, Will. Uh, Virginia Supreme Court is, is not elected popularly. So there are plenty of state Supreme Courts that are full of partisan hacks. Virginia is not one of them. Uh, the Supreme Court has upheld the prison gerrymandering prohibition. The Supreme Court has taken down the Lee statue in Richmond. The Supreme Court has upheld Governor Northam's um, COVID restrictions uh, last year, as well as the eviction moratorium several times. I mean, there's just not a lot of track record that our state Supreme Court's full of hacks. And so if it's a question of whether a commission gives it a shot, can't work out and gives it back to the legislature or gives it to our state Supreme Court, I'll go the court route every time uh, possible because the court's Never gerrymander. There's not an example in this country of a, of a court using a special master in gerrymandering, while legislatures always gerrymander. There's never an example of the legislature not doing that. So I think we get fair maps either way, but I am disappointed that the process uh, on the bipartisan commission has, has turned out um, the way it has thus far, even if there's a lot of good things to pull from it and a good record laid for the court um, and the special masters to use going forward. Quick follow-up. Is there a state in the country that you look to as a model in this? I mean, were you inspired by some state where you feel that uh, the long history of gerrymandering has been moderated or pushed back against? Or is this kind of like a blank slate? No one's ever really tried this. So there's a lot of states we've learned from. I would say, uh, you know, most of the states that have done redistricting reform, almost all of them, have been states where you didn't have to go through the legislature to get reform. So California, Michigan, Arizona, Florida, they were able to put a good idea on the ballot and get citizens to vote for it. Um, Since in Virginia, like half the states in the union, we had to go through the legislature. um, It was really hard to get legislators off this commission. So we had to settle for a a hybrid commission that had never been tried before. But what we got in the structure was really important because there was a supermajority vote requirement. It ends partisan gerrymandering. There's just no way this commission passes a Republican gerrymander or a Democratic gerrymander. Um, So that's a huge step, a win for eliminating partisan gerrymandering that way. 
The other thing we got was transparency throughout the whole process. I mean, democracy is messy. Drawing district lines is messy. And we've seen a lot of that mess, but at least it's been transparent. And then the third part, and I think this is, is a bit underrated at the moment, but the Virginia Constitution did not require protections for black and brown communities in redistricting. And now it does. There's state constitutional requirements that kind of mirror the Federal Voting Rights Act, but are independent of that, which I think is good given how the the federal courts have treated the Voting Rights Act in the past decade or so. I think Virginia needs that added protection. David, I want to know if you agree with that rather optimistic uh, assessment of the redistricting process. It's essentially ugly, but the ugliness is transparent. And one way or the other, we're going to we're going to wind up with some uh, some fair maps. But gerrymandering, you know, strikes voters as unfair, as undemocratic. Um, It's old. It's happened before. But that doesn't make it right. And, And I want to get your comment on what Brian said, but also Reflect a little bit on your own experience uh, in the legislature. You know, what are the effects on the work of legislators at the state level? Does it make it impossible for state government to work or is it just, you know, kind of the price of admission? There are so much to talk about surrounding uh, redistricting and gerrymandering. The first point I'd like to make and to pick up on what Brian said, states really matter in terms of how this unfolds for their constituents. So you have a place like California that has the ability for a group of citizens to put something on the ballot for a direct vote by the people. And if that vote is successful, it becomes part of the Constitution, therefore bypassing the legislature altogether. It's called initiative petition, and you have it mostly in the West. But you see that activity working in various states where the public doesn't feel the legislature is responsive to their desires. With the system in Virginia, this had to be passed by the legislature. And so right away, you set a dynamic where the legislators are worried about what's going to happen to them in this process. I think Mm. that's one of the reasons why we got the structure that we uh, got in this case. So, yeah, it, it made my life much more difficult because it sets up a dynamic which tends to create districts that are safe for one party or the other, therefore having more strongly partisan views be reflected in the candidates who are elected. And so when they get to Richmond, it's harder for them to cooperate uh, in order to get things done. And you've seen this in Congress, and you're Mm -hmm. seeing it more in state legislative houses around the country. Yeah, no kidding. Well, David, we live in Charlottesville, and it's a lovely town, a wonderful city to live in. Uh, It's a very blue city. And if you drive just uh, three or four miles in any direction, you start getting into a much more purple Virginia and eventually a much redder Virginia out in the beautiful countryside of central Virginia. What is the significance of having a kind of growing urban-rural divide? It seems to me, as a city dweller, that the gap between these two communities, these two ways of looking at state politics and maybe at the world, has really grown. Is, is that just my impression, or is there some truth to that? Oh, there's a lot of truth to that. You know, 20 years, 25 years ago, Virginia was primarily a rural state. And if you look at the center of the population, I've got a map in my book with dots that show that center of the population moving from uh, Cumberland County up along 95, where it's now closer to Stafford. And that's the population uh, growth in Northern Virginia. 
This is not unique in the states around the country. Illinois has it. New York has it. A a lot of places have these urban areas that are growing in size and they're overwhelming uh, in terms of the politics of a state. That's where leadership comes in because in Virginia, we call ourselves a commonwealth because we think we ought to be able to take care of everyone in the state independent of where they live. But the risk politically is that as more and more uh, power is concentrated in an urban area, the legislators tend to respond more to that population, and they have more representation in the General Assembly. Uh, Ralph Northam emerged from Northern Virginia with a 271,000-vote margin in the last election. You should watch that number on election night to see what happens with Terry McAuliffe, because that just overwhelms the rest of the state. Uh, But we have to have people who recognize that these folks in rural areas have very substantial problems and we're going to rise and fall as a, as a state if, uh, based on how we help folks in those areas as well as in the urban areas. Brian? Uh, I think David's nailed it here. He's absolutely right. You know, those folks have to look out for, for others. And I think that the Democrats are doing a pretty good job of that in Virginia when it comes to, you know, pushing broadband and, and rural development. We got a lot of money from the federal government recently, and that's going to go into rural broadband. That's a game changer for folks out there. I will say, though, that in Virginia, the norm has been the other way traditionally. Usually it's the rural areas uh, that have dominated our politics pretty much since the inception. If I could plug a book here, Brent Tarter, he's at the Library of Virginia. He wrote a great book called Gerrymanderers, How Redistricting Has Protected Slavery, White Supremacy, and Partisan Minorities in Virginia. It is an excellent look at that rural politics dominating the rest of Virginia. We're having the opposite today. And I think that, you know, David's right. We got to have folks that are looking out for the good of the whole Commonwealth. And and I think that that's happening. uh, And hopefully there'll there'll be some lessons learned from prior mistakes. Well, Brian, let's turn to the the gubernatorial race, if we can, for a moment here in Virginia. So this year, we've got a governor's race uh, that pits the former Virginia governor, a very establishment Democrat, Terry McAuliffe, against a newcomer, uh, multimillionaire, Glenn Youngkin. Well, so far, McAuliffe as, I, as far as I can see, he's sort of basically run against Donald Trump and his legacy. And Youngkin, who is a, a fan of, of Donald Trump's, has sort of premised his campaign on something he's calling election integrity. So it looks like Virginia's gubernatorial election is essentially a referendum on Trump. Is that good strategy for the Virginia Republicans to the extent that you could comment on that? But also, you know, is that good for the Commonwealth? What does that reveal about the way that state politics have become nationalized. I think we've been on this trend about nationalizing Virginia's politics for quite a while. I mean, if you look at the surge that we experienced in 2017, a lot of which fueled the redistricting reform movement that we pushed, but also helped the Democrats take back uh, the General Assembly. Uh, you know, that was if Trump wasn't elected, I don't think that happens. And so the last four years feel almost like a an anomaly in Virginia politics. Otherwise, I think our state is fairly evenly divided. I think the polls show that McAuliffe is likely to win by two or three points. But, you know, I don't think anybody's betting their mortgage on that. But that's what you're you're likely looking at. I think that's where kind of Virginia is as a whole. We're not as deeply blue as Biden winning by 10 points would suggest we could go back and forth. And and I think that it's interesting to watch uh, Glenn Youngkin kind of thread the needle on having to like talk about the big lie, but then kind of disavowing it. And then, you know, going back, I don't know whether I would have voted to certify 
the election on January 6th, that kind of stuff. It's, it's frustrating to see because I think in Virginia, net net, we are a sort of blue state. And if you're Glenn Youngkin, I don't know why he's not looking at Larry Hogan or or Charlie Baker, governors of, of Maryland or, or Massachusetts as successful Republican governors in blue states as to how to run and win. And, and Larry Hogan's been one of the biggest critics of Donald Trump. But, uh, you know, obviously Glenn Youngkin knows the Republican base better than I do and has managed to put himself in a position to win. He's got a puncher's chance. Is the trend in Virginia of sort of every local election becomes a national election, is that pretty much uniform across the country? Or do you think there are pockets of the country where national politics are not driving statewide elections? I mean, it strikes me as that really every election that we're going to see from now until uh, 2024 is, is at least at first set up as a Trump versus everyone else election. Yeah, I think we're seeing that a lot. And David, you you travel plenty too and, and know these legislators. I think we're seeing that plenty. But I also think you're seeing in in states like Alaska and Maine um, and other places, independence voters standing up and saying they're done with this, right? And I think Andrew Yang represents some of that. Um, but I do think this is a nationalized place. But with that nationalization and polarization comes an opening for you know independent voters and third party voters to say, this is um, enough is enough of this. We want better choices. You know, that, that leads me into a question for you, David, and, and it comes back to your book, which um, which very sort of nobly uh, calls for, you know, more citizen engagement, a return to civility as a path to rescuing our somewhat hobbled democracy. I just wonder if maybe the problem is that there's a perception among the electorate that government doesn't work. And as long as government doesn't deliver on the real problems voters care about, and voters do care about economic inequality. They do care about racial inequality. They care about tax systems in which uh, corporations don't pay their fair share. They care about the cost of housing and so on. Until we get substantive change on those issues, the political you know, leaders can hardly ask for civility from the public because the public is frustrated and angry. So isn't it the case that the only way to get civility back into politics is actually to listen to the electorate to bring about real change? What do you think about that argument? I think that's a pretty strong argument. It's not just about civility. It's also about leadership. And this brings me back to the Virginia election. That's why this election is so fraught with peril. Because the Republican candidate won't stand up for the very basic truth, and that is that Virginia elections are run with integrity and they're run fairly and they're run in a nonpartisan way. And as long as you have people who are running for the highest office in the state saying that sort of thing, it's going to be very difficult for people who disagree with that perspective to be civil about it. Because this is just feeding the big lie. And this election is a key for the country because if Yonkin was to prevail, then you have the Trump acolytes singing the praises of using election integrity as an issue in a, a gubernatorial campaign in states all across this country. And, you know, it is true that we are still fighting the war with Donald Trump, and that fight is not going away for another two to four years. If folks thought they exercised their responsibility with electing Joe Biden, they are sadly mistaken because the Trump base is very strong and a lot of what they are saying is attempting to undermine the legitimacy of elections. Once you have that, you open the way to tyranny. Uh, and then if you 
want to talk about how uncivil people are now, you know, it's going to be a picnic compared to what it could be like in four years. Brian, you've had amazing uh, success in pushing through the bipartisan redistricting commission process. I mean, getting a constitutional amendment is is an enormous achievement, and I'm sure that, that you must feel very gratified about that. Let me just ask you, if you could wave a wand and make another change to the way Virginia operates politically, is there something you would like to see next that would you know, make our democracy work a little bit better, maybe return to some of the civility that David's talking about? Yeah, I think David makes a really good point about that civility. I, I think we we are plenty divided as a people, right? See Facebook, see Twitter. Um, but I don't think we are nearly as divided as the structures of our politics make us do this. So waving a wand, I'd get rid of the, the eight legislators on the redistricting commission if I could and have an all-citizen commission. Um, those are working well in other states. Virginia should adopt that. I think we've got a chance to do that hmm. next. But I think the other thing we're thinking about is this first past the post winner take all system we have in our elections right you know Terry McAuliffe won his governorship the first time um, and I think uh, the libertarian candidate got seven percent so Terry McAuliffe didn't get over 50 percent I think he'll likely get over 50 percent this time but maybe not um, and and that means half or or even over half of the electorate wanted someone else um, now for a singular office like governor that's one thing perhaps we, we could do ranked choice voting and make a big difference there um, but but for the state legislature, right, we've got these districts where, you know, even in the reddest part of our state, there's still 25 percent, 30 percent of those folks in that district or what have you who are Democrats and in Richmond here, right? 80 percent, 85 percent Democrat, but there's still, uh, you know, a section of Republicans. Why don't we move to a, a multi-member proportional system that would get rid of this winner-take-all system? It's pretty clear that, that multi-member districts would make a, a big difference. And also, by the way, if you have big enough districts where you have, you know, instead of uh, 100 districts in Virginia that elect one member to the House of Delegates, why don't we have 20 that elect five each? They'd be bigger districts. You'd have, you know, more diversity in, in that mix. But you, when you see that, when you see those bigger districts, it also makes gerrymandering uh, less of a tool, no matter who's doing it. Mm. Well, let me wrap up uh, with this very timely conversation just to ask you both, you know, how's Virginia doing in comparison to other states today? Uh, I don't mean but it's, its economic policy or its unemployment numbers. I really mean in terms of how the state government is responding to the needs of voters, but also how the system works. It is, it seems, on the cusp of some significant changes, but put it into comparative context. Is Virginia kind of somewhere in the middle? Is it is it on the crest of a wave? Is it a laggard? Should the country be looking at what Virginia is doing for some inspiration? If I could take that first, this election is going to tell folks a lot. You know, McAuliffe has run a campaign that basically said, don't reelect Donald Trump and elect me because I've done this, this and this. But the emphasis is anti-Trump, at least to this point. The House of Delegates candidates are running different kinds of elections. The anti-Trump sentiment is key in their campaign, but they've been talking about what they have done. Uh, increasing the minimum wage, ending the death penalty, many, many voter reforms that were were dead on arrival in the in the General Assembly just three years ago, including early voting, uh, ease of registration, uh, other reforms that are being made in the uh, racial reconciliation area. You go down through the list, there are a lot of things that have happened in the last several years, and the House of Delegates uh, candidates on the Democratic side are running on those issues. So big changes in Virginia, and I think positive changes, 
Uh, and uh, we'll see how the campaign uh, pans out. If, if the Democrats win, it's a it's a ratification uh, and will be a ratification for other places around the country who are seeking this kind of change, that they know that the voters will support them if they adopt them. Brian, you see it similarly? I do. I would say that, you know, Virginia is not going to be on the bleeding edge of democracy reform or most reforms. Right. We're, we're, we're late to the party on marijuana. We're late to the party on redistricting. We're late to the party on early voting. The states out west are going to do that first because they have the citizens initiative process that David talked about. They can just go around their legislature and get it done. However, of the states that don't have that process, which is about half of them, um, and particularly in the South, I think Virginia is leading the way in a lot of that, right? We're, we're a step behind those folks uh, with the Citizens Initiative. But as far as the rest of us that have to go through the state legislature, Virginia's pushing the way. And we're going to do it in a slightly different way. And it may not always work out, right? Bipartisan Citizens Redistricting Commission uh, looks like it's gridlocked right now. Um, but we're going to do it in a slightly different way. And I hope that the lessons we do in Virginia will help inform folks in Georgia and North Carolina and other states. And I think that the Democrats in the General Assembly have done a hell of a job of moving those ideas forward. And I think they're pushing the Overton window a bit as well for the Republicans that, that are in there. And I hope that you're starting to see more Republicans embrace this and realize that, hey, Trump voters vote early, too. Like, it's not a partisan thing to have access to voting in this state. Well, Brian Cannon, David Toscano, you guys are modeling civility in politics. And thank you very much for joining us on Democracy in Danger. <laughs> thank you so much for having us on. <laughs> Thanks, Will. Appreciate you all having us. That was Brian Cannon, director of campaigns at the Institute for Political Innovation. And David Toscano, a retired member of the Virginia House of Delegates, and the author of the new book, Fighting Political Gridlock, How States Shape Our Nation and Our Lives. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all our sister shows. Here's a quick message from our friends. Hi, I'm Ellie Bashkow, an intern here on Democracy in Danger. We wanted to let you know about a podcast we've been listening to from Foreign Policy Magazine. It's called Ones and Twos. Economic historian Adam Tooze is like an encyclopedia about basically everything uh, from the COVID shutdown to climate change and pasta sauce. On Ones and Twos, he joins FP editor Cameron Abadi, and together they unpack two numbers, one from the news and the other something fascinating. Find Ones and Twos, that's T-O-O-Z-E, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's all we have for this installment of Some Fine States. Next up in our series, Colorado. To be very clear, Mesa County, clerk and recorder, allowed a security breach and by all evidence at this point, assisted it. So have you wondered why we're doing this series in October? Well, there's an election coming up next month for some of you. We want to urge you to get out and help us save democracy. Please, if you can, go vote. And if you can't, get registered. Once you've done that, connect with us on Twitter at DND Podcast. That's D-I-N-D Podcast. And keep the conversation going. Find more on our website, dindanger.org. And subscribe to the show wherever you get your audio. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengol with help from Jennifer Ludovici. Sydney Halliman edits the show. Our interns are Denzel Mitchell, Jane Frankel, and Ellie Bashkow. 
Support comes from the University of Virginia's Democracy Initiative and from the College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Deliberative Media Lab. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Will Hitchcock, and don't worry, Siva Vadianathan will be back next week. We'll see you then.